I just, I love what we read um, on Sunday, and this has been kind of going around in my head. And it's, it's from Luke 10, where, where Jesus went to the home of Martha and Mary, and Martha invited him in, and she's serving. And you know, remember that old story about how she's busy and stressed and all that. And Jesus' words to Martha were, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary. And then he, he makes this comment. Mary has chosen the better portion. I, I just love that. I mean, Jesus was so good at word plays. That, that's a little pun. Do you realize that? He, he's punning there when he says, Mary has chosen the better portion. As Martha's trying to serve up dinner, Mary's already eating, already feeding on the words of Jesus. And that's what we do when we gather together. So Jesus, we come for our portion tonight. And Lord, you know what each one of us, how hungry we are. You know how much we can take, how much we desire to be filled. And Father, what a blessing that your word will fill uh, just a little bit if someone's just a little hungry or a lot if someone is starving. And the reality is by the time we're done, we will all still want more because that's your word. And I pray, Lord, your word would fill us tonight to overflowing to give us things to think about and pray about and walk through, at least between now and, and Sunday. Father, in this world, we need the strength of our portion, our portion being your word. So, so we come for that tonight. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, for feeding us. And we ask that you would do so in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are in John chapter 12, continuing. We'll pick up from where we left off on Wednesday. Uh, in fact, if you look at verse 20, it says there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast, and these then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and they began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And you know the story. Philip told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them and said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies... It remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life or his soul loses it. He who hates his life or his soul in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And that is the direction Jesus laid in for the disciple of Jesus to follow him, to go where he goes, and where he went as that first fruits grain of wheat, he went into the ground and died. And so he invites his people to come after him in that same way, to die to self, to die to the things of this world, and to live to Jesus, serving under the honor of the Father. Now, with that in mind, last week, we talked about how John spends the first half of his gospel talking about three and a half years of ministry. He, he covers, that's the span, the ministry of Jesus. But then the last half of this gospel, picking up here in chapter 12, he spends on the final week. But it's even more pinpointed than that. Chapter 12 covers two days. 
So chapter 12 begins with that story on Shabbat, on Saturday, at the home, at, at the house at least that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are staying in the home of Simon the leper, and that Sabbath meal that they share together. That's the first part of chapter 12. The second part happens on Sunday, the first day of the week, and then before you know it, we get to chapter 13, and it's Passover. So John doesn't even really go into the things of the last week, just Saturday, Sunday, and then we skip right to the heart of the gospel, right to that last Passover, and then leading straight in after that, of course, to the betrayal and the crucifixion of Jesus. And really, if you look at it, while, while the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they cover a lot of conversation in the last week. A lot of debates with Pharisees and, and questions and, and intimations that happened during that week. John doesn't cover any of it. He literally will skip from this day, this Sunday, first day, right to Thursday. And then he focuses the, the bulk of the rest of the gospel. In fact, after chapter 13, eight more chapters that follow the Last Supper. And of those eight chapters, it is primarily, get this, primarily Jesus preparing his apostles for the last days. The bulk of the end of this book, so nearly half of it, at least a third, a good third, more than a third, is Jesus preparing his followers for his departure and for last days living. That's why it is so apropos, so applicable to us as last days disciples. And this is the heart of the gospel, Jesus in preparation. But tonight we'll finish what we could call Jesus' final discourse, at least publicly, in John's gospel. This is it. Last time he's gonna speak in public, and then John remembers, focuses on, and recalls all the teaching that was just to the disciples. Well, we'll pick it up in verse 27. Jesus says, now my soul has become troubled. Read that again. Now my soul has become troubled. Jesus got troubled. Jesus is, in this moment, troubled. Jesus knew what it was like to be troubled. Isn't that great? <laughs> he gets it. You ever been troubled? Anyone troubled recently or, or troubled during this past week or troubled in this last year? or just kind of generically troubled with the world in which we live. These are troubling times. Jesus understands. Jesus was troubled. The word is terasso, and it also translates anxious, distressed. The demeanor of Jesus immediately changes. He makes this declaration. The Greeks come to him, and he realizes, hey, the times of the Gentiles are near. This is it. My hour has come. And he expresses that. And then you can almost see in the writing of John his head hang and the trouble come upon him as the Son of Man feels the weight of what's coming. Jesus was troubled. It's interesting that just Thursday of that same week in chapter 14, verse 1, Jesus will tell his disciples, Do not let your heart be troubled. Well, Jesus, you were troubled. I know, I understand, he would say. Do not let your heart be troubled. And then he gives the, the way we can avoid it, the way we can draw out of those troubling times of that troubled spirit, believe in God, believe also in me. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Because when Jesus was troubled, guess what? That's what he did. 
It says again in verse 27, now my soul has become troubled. He says, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Jesus turns to the father and immediately is saying, what, what, am I supposed to just give up now? Am I supposed to quit? Am I supposed to say, God, let me out? And in John, this is as close as we get to Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. That's Jesus in the garden. Mark chapter 14, verse 36. John doesn't detail Jesus saying that in the garden. John shows him saying it right here on Sunday at the head of the week. I am troubled. What am I supposed to do? Just quit now? No. For this reason, he says, for this purpose, I came to this hour. Jesus believed in God and he believed in himself. That is, in his purpose for even being on the planet. His reason for coming is what's before him. You know what verse 27 sounds like to me? It sounds like the Son of God is reassuring the Son of Man. Jesus is talking to himself. The spiritual self is comforting the natural self. He's encouraging himself. Do you ever do that? That's not too weird. I do it all the time. Man, I'm just kind of bummed about this, but, but, but why am I here? But what is this for? And when you talk to yourself that way, that's your spirit man, your spirit woman is talking to your natural man, your natural woman, and bringing the encouragement of faith. What, am I supposed to just quit now? No, no, of course not. I'm feeling a little troubled, but I believe in God. I believe also in Jesus Christ. Now, the truth is we have no idea what it's like to be fully man, fully God. Most of us have trouble being fully man with a little bit of our spirit in control, you know? Jesus was both. And understand that's what makes him completely unique and, and will be unique for all eternity, is unique in all of eternity. He is the only God-man, but what's remarkable is that Jesus felt what every human being feels. And yet, he knew what only God could know. We think it was easier for Jesus being God? No way. I don't know what God knows. I don't know what's coming tomorrow or next week or next month. I don't know. I know big picture because God's told me what's coming down the line and it could be tonight. I know I'm gonna be with Jesus. But Jesus knew what only God could know and yet he walked in flesh fully human. What a weight he had to carry. And so, of course, here you see the Son of Man. What shall I say? I'm, I'm troubled. Shall I say, save me from this hour? And as Son of God, no. That is why I'm here. One uh, commentator put it this way. The horror of his death collides with the passion of his obedience. I really like that. The horror of his death collides with the passion of his obedience. The obedient Jesus facing the horror of what that obedience means and yet it causes him to step right up and say, verse 28, Father, glorify your name. And that's the key. The son glorifies the father. This is the axle on which the wheel of Jesus' earthly life turned. 
the glory of God. John 7, 18, maybe you recall, Jesus said, he who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. I'm here for the glory of God, Jesus said. Or John 8, 29, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. It's all about his glory, Jesus says. Or John 8, 50, I do not seek my glory, for there is one who seeks and judges. There's a great moniker for any of our lives. I don't seek my glory. This is not about me. This is not about me putting myself forward and, and achieving some kind of stature in this world. I don't seek my glory. I seek his. Because he's the only one to be glorified. Listen, glorifying God will always fuel your faith and obedience. Which is why I think we see Jesus doing it right here at this crucial moment where it's hitting him what's coming. He's known, but he's right on the edge of it. And he says, Father, glorify your name because in glorifying God, in praising God, in worshiping God, our faith increases. And our obedience is more secure. This is why we worship. I know we've talked about this a lot recently. We worship because he deserves it. We worship because he is worthy of it. We worship for him and to him and about him. But you know what? It has an amazing impact on our lives. And if you're feeling troubled, praise the Lord. If you're feeling worried or weary, worship God. How do we stand firm in this world that is so shaky? It's veering into such hateful and spiteful and selfish lawlessness. I mean, it's just crazy. We talked about a lot of this on Sunday, what we're seeing. How do we stand on God's moral absolutes with a society that is pursuing immorality? Father, be glorified. Glorify your name. See, if we keep the glory in the right place, we will stand. Our faith will be secure. Father, glorify your name, he says. And then a voice came out of heaven and said, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. And that is awesome. What a great and encouraging response. In other words, right here, God says, I have glorified my name in the immediate context in the ministry of Jesus. I have glorified my name in, in your ministry. My name has been glorified over the last three and a half years and I will glorify it again in Jesus' sacrifice. So in the moment, God can say, immediately I have and I will. I have glorified, I will. You can say that in your life. If you're a follower of Jesus, God has glorified his name in your life before. He's gonna do it again. Of course, the picture is bigger than this, but it is so reassuring. I hope you get this the way it hit me. But when God says, my name will be glorified, I will glorify it again, he's speaking future tense. He's talking about down the line of this continuous action in the future that he will be glorified. So no matter how weird it gets, no matter how sick, no matter how twisted culture may become, guess what? God will be glorified. 
His glory will be seen by all the world. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 5, the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. You can go to the bank on this one. God will be glorified. So no matter what Congress does or the president does, or the current news cycle keeps pumping out there, no matter what any of these things do or what anyone says, God will be glorified. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 says, Now unto him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. That's not a wish, it's a promise. He will be glorified. And again, this is the key to getting through our troubled times. It's the key to our distress. Glorify the name of God. Nothing is more comforting. Nothing is more reassuring than knowing God has both glorified his name and will glorify it again. No matter how loud the voices might scream, in opposition to things righteous and true. Did, did you hear? Because we, we talked about the Roe v. Wade thing on Sunday a little bit. Did you actually hear that, that, that one person had tweeted out of, of an organization? I think it was uh, the organization's called Ruth Sent Us after Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Ruth Sent Us, and the tweet was, We will burn the Eucharist. Right, yeah, yeah. Protesting in, in Catholic churches. and But, but the, for someone actually to come out and say, because in Catholicism, the thought is the Eucharist is the body of Christ. So what they're saying is, we'll burn the body of Christ. And, and what we're seeing is people who are shaking their fist at God's moral law, at God's righteous standards. And I... People denigrating, dishonoring, denouncing the righteousness and holiness of God. You know what? He has glorified his name and he will glorify it again and you can count on it. So don't worry, don't fret, don't be afraid. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to what? To the glory of God the Father. I will glorify it again, he says. Some misunderstand that. Some have trouble with this idea of the glory of God and giving glory to God. In fact, the people right there didn't get it. Verse 29, so the crowd who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. And others were saying, an angel has spoken to him. That is, some heard what they thought was a voice Others heard a rumbling in the sky. And you know what's really sad about that? God thundered from the heavens. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And some missed it. Oh, they heard the rumble, but they couldn't translate it. They, they couldn't understand what God was saying. The book of Job is, is fascinating in this Literally, the word thunder is used in the book of Job seven times. So that's always significant. Draws our attention, makes us sit up and take notice. Job 26, verse 14, his mighty thunder, who can understand? 
Well, apparently not this crowd. Or Job 36, 29, can anyone understand the spreading of the clouds, the thundering of his pavilion? Job 37, verse 2, listen closely to the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that goes out from his mouth. Job 37, 4, a voice roars. He thunders with his majestic voice and he does not restrain the lightnings when his voice is heard. Job 37, 5, God thunders with his voice wondrously doing great things which we cannot comprehend. Job 39, verse 25, now the Lord picks up the microphone and he begins to speak, or perhaps the megaphone, and he speaks of the thunder of the captains and their war cry. And Job chapter 40, verse 9, God says, do you have an arm like God? Can you thunder with a voice like his? So here it absolutely makes sense that God would speak and it would rumble and roll like thunder. And the people would hear it and say, is that thunder? And others would say, is that the voice of an angel? Oh, there's so much to this. Turn in your Bibles back to Psalm 29. Psalm 29, go ahead and turn back there. And if you don't have a Bible, grab one off the back. I want you to see this. Psalm 29. If you get there, just jump right in. Psalm 29, verse 1, ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in holy array. And this is what we were just talking about. Father, glorify your name. But then verse 3, the voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord hews out flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the the deer to calve and strips the forest bare and in his temple everything says glory the Lord sat as king at the flood yes the Lord sits as king forever the Lord will give strength to his people the Lord will bless his people with peace did you notice Psalm 29 the voice of the Lord we see the word voice the voice of the Lord seven times the voice of the Lord the voice of the Lord. The thunder in the book of Job, seven times. Psalm 29, the voice of the Lord, what does it do? It thunders seven times. And as a matter of fact, the Hebrew word for voice in Psalm 29 is kol, Q-O-L. Not coal like coal that you'd burn, but coal in the Hebrew. And it translates voice, but it also translates rumbling or thunder. Because the voice of the Lord is, is synonymous with thunder, with that rumbling sound. I, I, I can't wait till we actually hear it. Now, some of you have heard the voice of the Lord. You, you've heard him indicate to you. You've heard him speak quietly with a, with a gentle whisper, kind of like Elijah did. But God, when he's just speaking, I have glorified my name and I will glorify it again. There's a, there's a rumble going on here, a coal in the Hebrew 
And the old rabbis, they call this phenomenon the bat kol. Bat kol. Bat is, can be translated daughter or echo. The bat kol is the echo of the voice of God. The echo of the voice of God. And this carries on further. So, so in John 12, they hear the thunder. They, they hear his voice and it sounds like thunder. And then Job, seven times we see the voice, the thunder of the Lord. And then in Psalm 29, his voice thundering seven times. Go all the way over to the right in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 10. And if you Bible students are familiar with this, just come right along, such a great ride. Revelation chapter 10. This is not a difficult book to find in the Bible. So if you're having trouble, just ask someone next to you. But it's just Revelation 10. Verse one. And remember, by the way, John, who wrote the gospel, we're like, I'm 99.9% repeating, convinced it was John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And he wrote this gospel. And in chapter 12, he mentions the sound of the thunder and that some thought it had thundered. And it's the same John that received and wrote the Revelation. So Revelation chapter 10, verse one. I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud, and the rainbow was upon his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. And in his hand, he had a little book, which was open. And he placed his right foot on the sea and his left on the land. And he cried out with a loud voice as when a lion roars. And when he had cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. When the seven peals of thunder had spoken, John says, I was about to write. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken and do not write them. Why not? Well, they're not for us. They're not for here and now. Seal it up. Don't write it. What do they say? I'm dying to know. Well, just, you know, get used to disappointment. But that's not the point. The point is the seven peals of thunder. There's something going on here in Revelation. Same thing we see happening in Job. Same thing we see happening in Psalm 29. Same thing we see happening in John chapter 12. The seven peals of thunder... That's the voice of the Lord, the voice of God. It's interesting because in Revelation, it says the seven peals of thunder, and we also hear John refer to the seven spirits before the throne. And I was having enough trouble with just the Trinity. Now there are seven spirits before the throne? Seven spirits speaks of the Holy Spirit, the complete Holy Spirit of God. The seven peals of thunder, the complete voice of the Lord, the sounding of the Lord. So the seven thunders, the thundering voice is the voice of God. One other thing I'll just throw out to you that's interesting to me. Psalm 29 is a favorite psalm to sing on a festival day in Israel called Shavuot. We call it Pentecost. They like to read and have traditionally read Psalm 29, the thundering voice of the Lord on Pentecost. What happened on Pentecost the Spirit came upon the apostles and they preached the gospel. The voice of the Lord through his followers. Well, it's interesting. So the voice of God, the thundering voice of God, thunder and, and voice synonymous for God in the scriptures. And I asked the question back in John chapter 12. You can go back there now. 
How did they miss it? How do you miss the thundering voice of God? This is not the gentle whisper of Elijah. This is the thunder. God shouts from the heavens, as it were. He rumbles, he roars. I have glorified my name, and I will glorify it again. And they didn't get it. Did you hear something? Sounded like it was rumbling up there. I thought I heard an angel, maybe. And they missed the voice of God. And people today will say, if only God would speak to me. If only he would speak to me, then it'd be okay. If only I could hear him. God, why don't you say something? Why don't you speak to me? And in the background, we hear, why don't we hear him? You know why they missed it? They didn't speak his language, so they couldn't translate it. I'm not talking about some weird heavenly language. I am talking about a very specific language that if you speak this language, you will translate when God speaks to you. But if you don't speak this language, you will not understand when the Lord speaks to you. What are you talking about, Rick? You will not hear God if you don't trust him. I'm talking about the language of faith. Now, Brothers and sisters, do not let the devil turn that around and go out of here thinking, oh, I can't hear God because I lack faith. I didn't say that. I'm saying the key to hearing the rumbling voice of the Lord is trusting in the Lord. The key to knowing God's will for your life, to hearing him quietly in your heart or loudly, audibly, even in your ears, the key is always trust the Lord. Well, I trusted him Yesterday when I prayed and he still hasn't answered. Give it time. Keep trusting him. I've trusted him for 39 years. Okay, Moses was in the wilderness 40 before God spoke to him through the burning bush. Trust the Lord. If you trust him, then you know what the old rabbis taught and that is that God thunders. That his voice Rumbles, And sometimes that rumbling is simply within your heart. You feel the rumbling and you know the will of God. Well, verse 30, Jesus answers them. And he says, this voice, note this, has not come for my sake, but for yours. Wait a minute. If, if they don't comprehend or understand the voice of God, why does Jesus say this was for their sake? and not for his own. Two reasons. First of all, Jesus was already fine. His moment of being troubled was immediately replaced by his own faith and trust in the Father, immediately said, no, this is why I'm here. Father, glorify your name, and Jesus is good to go. He didn't need to hear in that moment because through his worship, through the glorification of God's name, he's fine. By the way, if you're sitting there going, I just want to hear from God, hey, just worship him. Praise him, glorify him, honor him, and you won't feel so stressed out. Lord, what do you want me to do? Just don't worry about what he wants you to do. Just praise his name. He'll show you. You'll know. But here Jesus says, it didn't come for my sake. He's okay. No, this voice came for your sakes. It came for you. Listen, 
as far as the people were concerned, even if they couldn't translate the voice, even if to them it was a rumble or perhaps a voice of an angel and they didn't realize it was from God, you know what they knew? They knew that this rumbling in the heavens was in response to Jesus. There is an obvious sense here, whoa. <laughs> and, and I know some of you have done that too. You know, we'll, I, I think, was it, a, was it a family camp? Okay, this is my, I'm, losing, I'm losing my memory, but that's okay. I, at a time, I remember camping out with a group of people. It may have been family camp, maybe not, but, but we were praising, we were worshiping. We get about halfway through a song and we said, and praise the Lord, and all of a sudden, the sky cracked with lightning and thunder and we all went, <laughs> that was cool. We made an assumption God was responding, you know, but they knew that there's a rumbling going on here. And this is in response to Jesus saying, Father, glorify your name. This is awesome. And so Jesus wants to confirm, hey, that sound that you heard, yeah, yeah, that's for you. That was in response. Verse 31, now judgment, Jesus says, is upon this world. You know what? Stop there. Note that. If you're worried about what Congress may do, what the Supreme Court may do, what the president may do, you need to understand that 2,000 years ago, judgment was upon this world. The judgment has been made. Now the ruler of this world, he says, will be cast out, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Amazing. Just split seconds before Jesus was troubled in the recognition of where he was headed that week, and yet he is so focused, so resolute, so determined that he remains undeterred. The cross before him, and with the cross in view, listen again, he says, now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Judgment is upon this world. But that was 2,000 years ago. I thought judgment was at the end, right? Judgment day with the big lineup of people and the screen that shows all your sins to everybody in the line. That's what I used to think when I was a kid. Scared me to death. They're all gonna know. Judgment day, it's after it all, right? It's at the end of the age. And isn't Satan, the ruler of this world, isn't he cast into the pit after the tribulation? So how can Jesus say these things that judgment's upon the world now? And now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Listen very carefully. The rulers and ruler, or the ruler and the rulers of this world thought they were passing judgment on Jesus at the cross, when in reality, the cross was passing judgment on them. And we need to understand judgment has happened. The judgment's already in. The sentence is already spoken. Jesus said in John 3, 19, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. Jesus' first coming secured the judgment that is upon this world. The only reason why judgment hasn't, hasn't been fully worked out in terms of the punishment of this world is the grace of God. The mercy of God in holding off the result of that judgment, but judgment has happened. Jesus is about to remind them of this whole thing, of this issue of judgment. But when the world tried to snuff out the light of the world at Calvary, the world was judged. 
That's when judgment took place. Setting the standard for both salvation and the sentence of unbelief. Now, are you with me? Judgment happened at the cross. Judgment day, as we speak of it, the great throne judgment, Revelation chapter 20, happens at the end of the millennial kingdom. But judgment itself was meted out at the cross. Let me put it this way. You have judgment in a courtroom, and then you have sentencing. Judgment's already happened. The judgment has been rendered. The verdict is in. Believe in Jesus, and you will be saved. Don't believe, and you will be condemned. Done. That's the judgment. It's already been rendered. It's already been spoken. It's out there. And yet God has so far now placed 2,000 years between the judgment and the sentencing out of grace. The eternal sentence has yet to be applied. And the ruler of this world will be cast out first into the pit for a thousand years and then into the lake of fire. That is already set in. That's happening. Satan is not going to reverse that course. He can't. Primarily because he is so depraved. But what about right now? So judgment happened at the cross. What about today? What, what does this mean for right now? Turning your Bibles over to Colossians, to the right of John, just a few books, the book of Colossians. Chapter 2, Colossians chapter 2. I'll pick it up in verse 13. Colossians 2, 13. And I, I just found this whole thing so encouraging this week especially. Colossians 2, 13, watch this. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh... He made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him, that is through Jesus this is what has already happened. Now, Satan has been judged and disarmed. He still attacks. He still comes out of nowhere. He still hides in the shadows. He still uses every tool at his, at, at his uh, you know, use to try and, and undermine faith among believers and try to detour the non-believer from ever coming to faith. But he is disarmed. And the demonic powers have been at the cross, disarmed, detoothed, declawed. Satan is still about the lies and understand that there is dark power in that, in his ability to deceive. But now in Jesus, he only has the power over you that you give him. He can only wield such power as we allow him to wield. And I'm talking about those who are in Christ. You are in Christ Jesus. He can only have power over you that you allow him to have and primarily, primarily that power is fear. That is the number one thing he uses. Deception, discouragement, but it's all about the fear. Bring in the fear. Listen, Satan cannot call in your debt. It's already been paid. He, he cannot apply or reapply interest to your sin account, there is no sin account. 
He can't do anything to you to destroy or remove your salvation in Jesus Christ. So he will deceive and he will try to undermine. He'll come alongside and try and make you compromise and he will use fear tactics. But here's the thing. Jesus said, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Where Jesus is lifted up, the devil is put down. Which is another great reason why we praise the name of Jesus. It puts away the devil. It puts him down. Where Jesus is enthroned, the devil is dethroned. Where Jesus is embraced, the devil is disarmed. I shouldn't mention it, but it's it's the Monty Python scene from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. It's the Black Knight. You know, he's standing there. How many people have seen the the movie? Okay. Let me ask this. How many people have not seen Monty Python and the Holy Grail? How many of you? Okay. You don't have to see it. I'll tell you the funniest scene right here. The Black Knight standing on a bridge and, and King Arthur comes up to him and he says, none shall pass. And King Arthur takes out his sword and chops off one of his arms and blood starts spurting out. And he goes, come on back here, fight me. And he's got now one hand with one sword. And he goes, what are you gonna do, bleed on me? And then he chops off his other arm. Ultimately, he chops off his arms, his legs, and he's just this little body and he's standing there coming, saying, come back here, I'll bite your kneecaps off. (laughs) Satan has been disarmed. This is what we are facing. Now again, the power is great when it's the power of deception. He is a liar and the father of lies. So he will deceive you into thinking he has control or power or sway in your life. He has none. He will lie to you about things behind you. He will try to remind you of those things and as if they still apply, they don't. You have been washed clean. That sin no longer exists in the eyes of the Father. But the devil has been disarmed. Embrace the Son. Embrace Jesus lifted up. And the lifting up of Jesus, as he declares it here, it is both upon the cross and I, if I am lifted up, will draw all men unto myself, but it is also the lifting up unto glory. Isaiah 52, verse 13, behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. We see this in the New Testament scriptures. Luke 9, 51, when the days were approaching for his ascension, which is exalting Jesus as he returned to heaven, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. What for? His crucifixion. The lifting up and the lifted up. Or Philippians chapter two, verse eight, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, death on a cross, lifted up on a cross, God highly exalted him, lifted him up. Or Hebrews 1.13, when he had made purification of sins, lifted up on the cross, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, lifted up in glory. And I, if I am lifted up, will draw all men to myself. Verse 34, verse 33. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. And the crowds get it. They do understand he's talking about dying. Watch this, verse 34. Well, the crowd then answered him, we've heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. How can you say the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? It's the right question, but it's the wrong attitude. 
Who is the son of man? Jesus said, who do you say that I am? That's the question everybody must answer, but that's not how they're asking it. Who is this son of man? They're confused. They're picking up here that Jesus is Messiah or that he is claiming to be Messiah. In fact, his use of the, of the phrase back in verse 23, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified, that's messianic. Son of man is a messianic term, and so they hear him use that, and they know he's talking about himself. They see him, this whole section, they see him get troubled. They hear him talk about the grain of wheat that's gonna fall. This whole section is a very tight narrative. And what I mean by that is sometimes we study the Bible, and, and we do like I've been doing tonight. We read a verse and we stop and talk, and then we read a verse and we stop and talk, and then we read a verse. And by the time we get through the section, we've spent, you know, three and a half or four hours. <laughs> we won't. But we break it down like that. This is one brief conversation. And this happens start to finish very quickly. So their mindset is still, they have just, you know, the grain of wheat must fall to the ground and die. Jesus looking troubled, all of that has just happened. This is fresh on their minds as he says, the son of man must be lifted up. And they make the assumption, which is obvious by their question, they make the assumption that lifting up has to do with being killed. Perhaps crucified because crucifixion was all around them at this point. But they, they knew that he was talking about dying. Look again, they say, well, we've heard that Christ was supposed to remain forever. How can you say he's gonna be lifted up? If he's gonna live forever, how can you say, why are you talking about a grain of wheat dying? They're confused by all this. Now remember, Jewish thought in the first century is very similar to modern Jewish thought today, still believing that Messiah will come as a Moses or an Elijah or a David figure, but a human being. A son of man, not the son of God. And so there's, there's confusion in the ranks and they don't understand what he means by lifted up. So they ask the question again, who is this son of man? Jesus responds. Jesus said to them, verse 35, for a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light so that the darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. Now, do any of you read stuff like that? And you go, okay, they asked a simple question and Jesus goes all enigmatic on us. They're straightforward. Who is the son of man? All he has to say is, you're looking at him, dudes. So why does Jesus do this? Why didn't he just come right out and say, it's me? Duh. See, that's I would have said that. It's me, no duh. You guys don't get it by now? Listen, he has said that over and over and over. He has revealed himself as Messiah. He has made it clear through the signs. He has made it clear through the teaching. He has claimed oneness with the Father, which is why the Jewish authorities want him dead. Again and again, he has answered this question. They're not asking the question because they want to know the Son of Man. They're asking the question because they are enjoying theological chess. That's what this is about. Theological debate. Well, who is this? And they're just into the debate and the conversation, and they're not looking with faith. The Bible describes this, and watch out for this. The Bible describes those who 
love to debate and banter and question, saying in 2 Timothy 3, 7, these are those who are always learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. The crowds here are trying to get Jesus to enter into rabbinical theological discussion. Well, so who is this son of man? And Jesus, the reason why he answers somewhat mysteriously, he answers in a way that if you know that he's the son of man, if you know he's Messiah, you know he's talking about himself, the light of the world's here. Believe me right now, while I'm among you. But he says it just mysteriously enough because he's already answered the question over and over and over. Listen, the gospel could not be more simple. It couldn't be more plain. Now, I, I have had that experience. I'm sure some of you have. Where, you, How many times, how many ways do you need to explain it to somebody? How many ways do you need to rephrase, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus? There it is. How many times do I have to say, if you want to be saved for eternal life, trust in Jesus. Confess him as your Lord. Believe that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. I mean, it is so basic. It is so simple. And yet people, some would rather debate. And some are always learning, but never coming to a knowledge of the truth. You know why? Because the knowledge of the truth does not come without faith. We're right back to faith again. If you're not gonna trust God, you're not gonna believe God. Jesus, for his part, he always uses language and, and teachings that invite those who want him to come to him. If someone's really seeking for Jesus, they're gonna pick up every single thing he says and they're gonna run to him and they will follow him. If they don't really want Jesus, but they just wanna, you know, smoke screen so that their own life is not looked at, then he's gonna sound mysterious. Now you might say, well, but weren't these people seeking? I mean, they're there. They're, they're listening. Aren't they seeking? Some, perhaps. But let's let John explain. Verse 37. Actually, at the end of what Jesus said, while you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of the light. Jesus spoke these things and he went away and hid himself from them. Now, this is so contrary to the way we do altar calls. I, just, I want you to imagine this for a minute. I say, okay. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that he died to save you from your sins. He rose again on the third day and he lives forever that all who believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. What, we're not gonna give some opportunity here? Jesus, most of his teaching, he never did an altar call. Do you notice that? Most of the time, he never says, and by the way, if you will come and, and pray right now, you can receive me as Lord and Savior and we'll take you over and, and we'll get you baptized in the Jordan. Never does it. And even right here where he's come to the whole point of believe in the light so that you may become sons of light and then he goes and he hides. <laughs> Jesus, what are you doing? He is so much more patient than I am. He's waiting and he's letting it sink in. And faith and trust, sometimes it just takes time. I love when Les has said this to me several times. How long did it take you to come to faith in Jesus? 
So when we get frustrated with family or friends who are not coming along and, and who keep putting it off and putting it off, well, how long did it take you to finally become a, a real follower of Jesus Christ? Jesus is patient. So he goes and he, and he hides himself, but then John explains what's going on. Verse 37, but though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. The faith wasn't there. And John says, this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, verse 40, he has blinded their eyes and he has hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. John quotes from two different places in Isaiah. The first quote up there in verse 38 is Isaiah chapter 53, verse one, which reads, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And then he quotes from Isaiah chapter six. Turn back there now. Isaiah chapter six, and this is easy to find if you let your Bible fall open pretty much to the middle, you're gonna come to Isaiah. If you land in the Psalms, just go right. Isaiah chapter six in verse eight, and I want you to hear this in context. This is, this is really potent stuff that John is explaining to us. Isaiah chapter six, verse eight. Then I heard the voice of the Lord, Cole, the thunder. Isaiah says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, here I am, send me. That is the right response. It's very simple, it's very trusting, it's very straightforward. Here am I, send me. And he said, go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. And that's where John is drawing his, his explanation for the people. Who is this son of man, they say, after so many miracles, after such profound teaching, after three and a half years of proof after proof after proof as to who Jesus really was, they ask the question again, who is he? The question is, who are they? And they are the people being described by Isaiah or by the Lord to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter six. By the way, side note, and, and just tuck this one away. Maybe you've heard there are some critics out there, Bible critics, they call themselves higher critics. I, I really don't know why, maybe because they are for hire. But these higher critics who think that there's more than one author of Isaiah, they say, no, 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 it can't be written by the same guy. Why? Well, because honestly, it's too compelling as a messianic prophecy from start to finish. But, but they say it can be, it's gotta be two. There's Isaiah and there's Deutero-Isaiah. Deutero-Isaiah, second Isaiah. Two different guys written at two different times, they say. Well, you know what? According to John, he quotes from Isaiah 53, which would be in Deutero-Isaiah, according to these higher critics, and he quotes from Isaiah 6, which is in Isaiah, according to these higher critics. He quotes from both, and he says, that's Isaiah. 
So you don't have to look very far. Your argument really is with John in the Gospel of John who declares Isaiah is Isaiah. So let's just put that one to rest. There's just one Isaiah. And in Isaiah 53 verse 1, the, the prophet is obviously speaking of the suffering servant, right? Isaiah 53, Jesus, the suffering servant of the Lord. Jesus is, Isaiah 53 verse one, the arm of the Lord extended to the world that would be the suffering servant in the rest of Isaiah 53, the one pierced through for our transgressions. And I can let you look at that another time, but check this out, since we're already in Isaiah six, who is speaking to Isaiah? Who is the speaker in Isaiah chapter six, verses nine and 10, who says, go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive, keep on looking, but do not understand, and, and, and so on. Who's the speaker? Well, we don't have to look far. Go back to verse one of Isaiah chapter six. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord. The Lord, who's the Lord? Yahweh. I saw Yahweh sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. And seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with the other two he flew, because of course that's what seraphim do. <laughs> and one called out to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. And I said, woe is me, I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. Watch this, for my eyes have seen the king Yahweh of hosts who is talking in Isaiah chapter 6 it's Yahweh it's God the Lord on his throne right go back to John chapter 12 and look at verse 41 and what does Jesus say here or what does John say here these things Isaiah said because he saw his glory, and he spoke of him. Him who? Jesus Christ. John says Isaiah saw Jesus seated on the throne. If you're just reading Isaiah chapter six, you see Yahweh seated on the throne. Why? John has just reminded us yet again, I and the Father are one. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Jesus on the throne, Yeshua, Yahweh on the throne. John makes it very clear. He is on the throne and Isaiah wrote what he wrote. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He has blinded their eyes. He's hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes, perceive with their heart and be converted. And I heal them. And John says, Isaiah said this because he saw Literally, the glory of Christ, the glory of Jesus. So what's going on here? In this section, not Jesus' words, John's words inspired by the spirit of Christ, John is explaining, quoting from Isaiah, he is explaining the condition of unbelief. This is what I wanted to get to tonight. So if, if you're, you're thinking about tomorrow's work day, dial in. The condition of unbelief. The condition of unbelief is when Jesus is dismissed or rejected. That's the condition of unbelief, but there are symptoms of the condition. And the symptoms of the condition are dull ears, dim eyes, 
and insensitive or hardening hearts. Dull ears. What, what was that? Was that thunder? What, was, was that an angel speaking? Well, I, I don't know. I can't, could you hear? I couldn't hear that. Dull ears. Dim eyes. Who is this son of man as he's standing right in front of them? Insensitive hearts. That is hearts that are growing hard. Romans 11, 28, 25, Paul wrote, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. A partial hardening. 2 Corinthians 3.15, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart, but whenever a person turns to the Lord, that is Jew or Gentile, the veil is taken away. I think I told you recently that when we were in Jerusalem and we were speaking with our friend Moshe at a Shorashim bookstore, he quoted 2 Corinthians 3, verses 15 and 16. He says, I know that your Bible, I know that your New Testament says a veil lies over our heart. Well, he says, I see fine. And I'm sitting there going, no, you don't. You don't. You're a good guy. You trust in and love the Lord. You are obedient to the Hebrew scriptures, but you are still of dim eye. You're not seeing clearly yet. Now, I think Moshe is among many who is primed and ready for Messiah and may very well be among those who will mourn when they see him coming and fall down before him and worship him and be saved. And I hope and I pray that for my friend Moshe. But there is a dimness to the eye, even to the point where you can quote the very verse, but you don't see it. This is not necessarily a permanent spiritual condition, at least where Israel is concerned, because it's a partial hardening, and it is a removable veil, and that even right now, anyone, any Jewish person who comes to faith in Messiah Jesus is immediately clear-eyed and, and saved, but it's a partial hardening for Israel but it's dangerous. And it's dangerous because the condition of unbelief and these symptoms are progressive. The eyes get more dim. The ears become more dull. The heart becomes harder and harder and harder. And the condition of unbelief, the danger in, is, in it is that it can become permanent. The warning here of deafness, blindness, and hard hearts is a human trust issue. Everybody's got trust problems where this is concerned. It is a faith problem. And by the way, let me bring this closer to home. It's a problem in the church. It is a problem among Christians. I'll just read this to you, but all the way back over in Revelation chapter 3, verse 15, there is a letter written to a last day's church. You know the name of it. It's called Laodicea. Which, by the way, you know what Laodicea means? It's the church of the people's rights. That's what it means. The church of my rights. When we talk about Sunday, where personal rights are raised up over life itself. The church of the people's rights. Laodicea, to this church, Jesus says, I know your deeds that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. 
Because you say, I'm rich, I've become wealthy, I have need of nothing, and you do not know that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see, Jesus says, to Laodicea, to Christians in this last day's church. It is remarkable because we're not just talking about the partial hardening that's happened to Israel. We're not just talking about the condition of unbelief among non-believers. We're talking about people in the church whose eyes are dim, whose ears are dull, who, dim or dull, whose hearts are hard, and who are not coming to a knowledge of the truth, though they sit in church every single week. And I really doubt it's most of you because you're here on Wednesday night. Well done. But Jesus loves his church, he says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous, he says, and repent. And then he says this, familiar to you all, behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. That's not an evangelical verse. It's a church verse. I am knocking on the door of Christian hearts. Will you open your heart to me? Or will you remain dim of eye and dull of ear and hardened of heart? It is the Christian heart to which he appeals, at least in this letter, to Laodicea. And listen, because there is another symptom of this condition of unbelief that Isaiah doesn't mention. Isaiah specifically talking to and for and warning the people of Israel, but there's another symptom of the condition of unbelief that flares up in the church all the time, and that condition is the fear of man. Look at verse 42. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Are you ever afraid of what people might say if you went full-blown Jesus on them? If you just went out and started telling people about Jesus, and if at work you started declaring you are a faithful follower of Jesus Christ, can you imagine what people might say if you started standing up and saying life is more important than rights? And that's just one of so many moral issues that we could address, but specifically standing for Jesus in this world, is there something in you, in me, that makes us recoil a bit and not speak up when the Lord is saying, go tell that person about me. Confess me before men, and I will confess you before my Father who is in heaven. Listen, the fear of man is a petri dish for the condition of unbelief. And if we let our fear of reprisal or our fear of what people might say or our fear of what people might do because of what comes out of our mouths, if we let that win the day, our hearts will start to harden and our eyes will start to dim and our ears will become a little dull. And I'm not even saying that you'll lose salvation. That's not my point. My point is you may become useless for salvation, at least other people's. The fear of man, what are we afraid of? I had a great conversation with a young man on Sunday. Uh, and I won't name him. Okay, it was James Hayes. But he came up to me and, and, and James said, he goes, Pastor Rick, I, I want to talk to you about something. He said, I, I have this, 
I have a sense that, that God maybe wants me to start like a YouTube page or an Instagram account or, or something where I just go on and, and do Bible teachings. He goes, kind of like you, but not so long. <laughs> I said, get out of my face. No. Um, he said, I'm, I'm just thinking maybe to, to, to try and speak to people of my generation. And I said, first off, James, you are a perfect one to speak to your generation. I said, hey, we're on YouTube, but someone in their you know, late teens, early 20s, someone flipping through YouTube and, and searching around and comes to the Bridge Fellowship and sees me sitting up here might go, yeah, no, and move right along. But they might see you, a young man in your 20s, and go, what, what's he talking about? So I, I encouraged him. I said, I, I love this idea, James. Go for it. But he said, well, do you have any advice for me? And what immediately came to mind, and I tell you what, it was not me. This was, this was God. What immediately came to mind, I will read it to you now, Galatians 1.10, I said, James, first of all, kudos, you need to do this. I think it's a great idea. But listen, Galatians 1.10, let this be your standard. Am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And I said, bro, listen, when you do this, you're gonna start getting hate responses. You just will. Be prepared for that and keep in mind, you are not here to seek the approval of, of people, but the approval of God. That is our faith. And by the way, if I'm seeking the approval of God, the fear of man is wiped out. And it no longer becomes a condition of unbelief, but now I have growing faith in the Lord. Well, John describes, this is what's going on with the people. This is the heart. John, by the, the Spirit, is explaining these things. And then in verse 44, once again, Jesus cries out, and, and I'm just gonna add this, Jesus cried out because he just can't stay silent. He gives them the, the enigmatic, follow the light of the world statement, and then he disappears, but he has to come right back around because the heart of Jesus is there's somebody in this crowd who's gonna believe and who wants to be saved. And so Jesus cried out and said, he who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. Who's he talking about? God, and they knew he was talking about God. I have come as the light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep, it, keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me, can this be any more clear, has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak, and I know his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things which I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. And he just lays it all out, crystal clear. Here's the deal. Here's the answer to your question. Here's what you were seeking. Here's what you want to know. He puts it all before them. You want a plain answer to who is the Son of Man? All right, there it is. He gives it to them without question. And you know what's interesting? This last public message of Jesus recorded by John, it's the gospel. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ, given by Jesus Christ. He who keeps my words has eternal life. That's the deal. You follow me, you trust me. 
Now, as I said when we started, the rest of our study in John is personal. It's all discipleship for his closest followers. He goes from upper rooms and behind closed doors and on a quiet beach in the morning, preparing them for his soon departure. Sometimes God thunders from the sky. And sometimes he speaks to his own quietly and in private. But it's always his word that we need to hear. It is always the word of God. So I leave you with a final question. And you can process this and think through this. And, and, and after this, after I pray, I'll let you break into prayer groups. And, and that's how we'll finish off the evening. But the final question is verse 28, where Jesus says, Father, glorify your name. And a voice came out of heaven and God says, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. And as I said, the implication is, I have glorified it in you, Jesus, and I will glorify it again in you, Jesus. And so the question is, will the Father say this of you? Will the Father look at your life and say, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. If you know this song, sing it with me. In my life, Lord, be glorified, be glorified. In my life, Lord, be glorified today in your church. In your church, Lord, be glorified, be glorified. In your church, Lord, be glorified today. Father, glorify your name. Glorify your name in this fellowship. You have glorified glorified it, glorify it again, Father. And be glorified in us and among us and through us. Be glorified by us, Father, as we sing these songs of praise and worship you, but more, Father, as we walk every day of our lives, be glorified in our walk. Be glorified, Lord, in our words. Be glorified, Father, as we simply confess you before men. Be glorified, Lord, in the bravery and the perseverance that your spirit gives us that cancels out the fear of man. Be glorified, Father, in our faith as we trust you and believe in you that you're going to accomplish everything that you said. Be glorified, Lord, when we don't waffle or wander or fear be glorified, Father, in our lives and glorify yourself again, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.